it is time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Lisa Horsch, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Barb DeHeck. For the first hour, we will cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Today we have a high of 53, a low of 31. It's partly sunny. Um, winds are west to southwest, 7 to 14 miles per hour. It's mainly clear Wednesday night tonight, and the winds will be west out of the west from 7 to 14 miles per hour. The rest of our forecast for the next six days following, we have highs in the 40s and lows in the 20s. It's pretty consistent. Um, we do have a chance of some flurries um, next Sunday, and then the following Monday and Tuesday into early next week do look like sunny days. For headlines, the front page of the Des Moines Register, we have these nine retail local legends bring their creations to Iowa and the world. And love always finds a way how one Iowa adoptive mom is helping pay other families' adoption fees. And in our metro section, 59 more Iowa churches vote to leave the United Methodist Church. County closing five-term march as Des Moines mayor. And here is Barb with the first of our stories. Thank you, Lisa. These nine retail local legends bring their creations to Iowa and the world. Holiday shopping season traditionally marks its start on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. <clears throat> What's on your list for your friends and loved ones? Most of us yearn to find something truly unique, a memorable gift, whether it's a food item, clothing, or an artisan creation that is imbued with the spirit of its creator in place. Creating such products rests on entrepreneurs' ability to build and maintain a thriving business based on crafting unique products that become leading expressions of their genre. <clears throat> Those who drive, savvy, and cre creativity bring the all those whose drive, savvy, and creativity bring them success become legendary among their customers and peers. So, as you seek out that special something for someone special, this holiday season, consider these nine Des Moines Metro local legends. Ray Gun, witty t-shirts, and other items celebrate quirks of its local markets. It's located at 505 East Grand Avenue in Des Moines and eight more locations around Iowa and the Midwest. It's owned by Mike Draper. The product, locally made and oriented t-shirts and novelty items. Why it's a legend. <clears throat> Draper, a Van Meter native, got his start in the funny t-shirt business in 2004 while a student at the University of Pennsylvania, selling shirts with the slogan, Not Penn State. It was a jab at his private Ivy League alma mater, known as Penn, and for its disdain for the public Pennsylvania State University. By 2005, Draper was back in Iowa, selling t-shirts at his new ray gun store in the East Village. There are now ray gun stores across Iowa and in Chicago, Kansas City, Missouri, and Omaha, Nebraska, 
employing 100 people and selling not just T-shirts, but art prints, beer koozies, glassware, books, and a myriad of other items, all celebrating the quirks of their local markets or the Midwest in general. While most of Reagan's sales are in the brick-and-mortar stores, its online sales now exceed those of any single store. Draper, in 2020, moved the company's screen printing and shipping services from the Des Moines store to a warehouse to keep pace with the demand. Secrets of its success? The success of Raygun lies in capturing its hum the humor, and sometimes the absurdity, of its local market, something it does so well that it has a collaborative partnership with the national digital humor publication, The Onion. Quote, the entire company is built on coming up with a mix of products that are topical, geographical, and progressive, Draper said. It was a success of his now classic Des Moines, hell yes, t-shirt that convinced Draper there was a market for simple products with witty, locally focused slogans. The success with that shirt was an affirmation for me. Des Moines was on a creative hot streak in the early 2000s, and the shirt caught on. I learned that humor was more nuanced than I had thought, he said. <clears throat> Sticks. Furniture combines unique quality, design, and American folk art. Located at 400 East Locust Street, Des Moines, with a workshop in West Des Moines. His products are carried in more than 200 retail outlets nationwide. It's owned by Rachel Eubank. And the product, a 100% locally crafted furniture, accessories, and objects art. Why it's a legend. Eubank's mother, artist Sarah Grant, founded Sticks in 1992 after creating a one-of-a-kind wooden nativity for Better Homes and Gardens magazine that sparked enormous demand for her creations. Quote, in terms of uniqueness, we've been at this for 32 years, and we've just kind of dialed in to a unique combination of quality, design, and American folk art. That's kind of combination of things that is real special sauce that, thank goodness, continues to appeal to people, said Eubank, president and second-generation owner of the business. How much appeal? Sticks had as his product in retail outlets from Seward, Alaska to Key West, Florida. Even though Sticks is based in Des Moines and so proud of its store in the East Village, once home to Reagan, 95% of the products created in the metro are sold in other states, Eubank said. Secret of its success? Offering customers an opportunity to purchase unique, high-quality products as opposed to mass-produced goods. Quote, in an age of quick-fix Amazon and other online retail where it's a race to the bottom, there are still consumers out there who are kind of bucking that trend and saying, I would like to have one thing of quality and character and integrity rather than five things that are from unknown origins, Eubank said. I think when you make yourself aware of shopping local and what that impact is, and you really think about it long and hard, it's really making an investment back into your own community. <coughs> cool and Nib, craft, crafting writing instruments sold with a story. Located at 133 5th Street in West Des Moines and owned by Robert Beers. Product, handcrafted writing instruments, plus a suggestion of selection of pens and stationery from other suppliers. Why it's a legend? So you're a decent home cook. You can fry an egg and broil a pork chop a point. You decide to start a restaurant, and then you discover that preparing and serving a variety of food on demand at that scale is a whole different enterprise. That's not unlike the story of beers, 
79, who says he started Quill and Nib in 2006 as a sort of joke after his elderly mother, for whom he was providing care, complained that she wished the U.S. Navy retiree would get a job. The Des Moines native said that he had messed around on a small home lathe making pen bodies, so he launched the store in a kiosk at Valley West Mall. Beers had a lot to learn and describes it as the hardest job he's ever taken on. But through what he calls an inborn mixture of determination and innate skill with his hands, he mastered his craft. Now his store is a historic Valley Junction fixture, and he creates pens ranging in price from $68 to $500 for a loyal clientele. His workshop is a humble back room in the store, with a couple of lathes, a sander, polishers, and an all-important shelf stacked with materials ranging from acrylic and rubber to wood to stone. On request, he even once made pens from crushed brick, and he experiments constantly with novel ideas. Anyone interested in a pen made with the cremains of their favorite pet? I learned some, something new all the time, Beer said. Secret of its success? Beer said his store is the only one in Iowa, and one of a relative few around the country, devoted to making artisan writing instruments, so he can succeed with a niche product. But he still works at building his business one customer at a time. You never sell to a stranger, says Beers, who tried but eventually ditched online marketing. You try to learn about them, become a friend with them. You don't really sell a product, you sell a story. <coughs> Berkwood Farms, raising flavorful pork based on strict protocols. Located at 6615 Northeast 14th Street in Des Moines, with international distribution. Owned by, it's a former owned cooperative. Product, family farm grown premium pork products from Berkshire Pigs. Why it's a legend. Berkshire Farms says it's 100% certified pure heirloom Berkshire pork. It's distinctive for its rich, ruby color, marbling, tenderness, and depth of flavor. It's owned by a network of small family farmers in six Midwestern states. Most are in Iowa, the nation's leading pork producer. But unlike the hogs that are the source of the commodity pork commonly found in supermarkets, Berkwoods are raised with a firm set of protocols aimed at being practical, humane, and sustainable. They include no use of antibiotics or hormones to promote unnatural growth, no use of confinement pens, an all-vegetarian, grain-based diet, and minimizing stress on the animals. The company offers all of the traditional cuts, with pork bellies and tomahawk chops being among the favorites, said Jake Morris, key account manager and marketing specialist. It also assembles gift-top boxes, such as a breakfast package and party pack, and offers gold-foil-wrapped, honey-glazed, applewood-smoked hams for the holidays, both spiral-cut and ready for carving at the table. The cool thing about our business is that if you call us, we can tailor a Christmas package to your exact needs, Morris said. Secret of success? Berkwood's strict protocols are costly to comply with and require a real commitment from its farmers. But the result is a reputation for quality so strong that Berkwood's products are offered by name on restaurant menus from Texas to Tokyo. Berkwood Farms products can be purchased at his store or at betterpork.com. Lola's Fine Hot Sauce, prepared with fresh ingredients in Iowa Nice Values. Look, location is made in Des Moines with nationwide distribution. Owners, Tofik and Carmelita 
known as Lola Shaw. Product, hot sauces, sauces, seasonings, and biscuit cookies. Why it's a legend? Tofik Shaw and his retired physician mom, Lola, launched Lola's Fine Hot Sauces together in 2015. Now, more than 10,000 U.S. retailers carry the company's products. They're available at Walgreens, Walmart, Hy-Vee, and Target locations, as well as local merchants. <coughs> Lola Shaw, who until 2022 operated an eponymous Filipino restaurant in Ankeny with daughter Hannah Elliott, developed the recipe. Her son has said he realized it had commercial potential after it got rave reviews from his colleagues at Principal Financial when he took it to work for a taco day. My mom is the heart and soul of the brand. I'm just a sales guy, Tofik Shaw jokingly told the Des Moines Register. Shaw, who was raised in northeast Iowa town of Winthrop before moving to Waterloo, has turned his West Des Moines-based company into a corporate heavyweight. With new product rollouts like Lola Racha, the family's homespun rendition of a classic Sirachaka sauce. All of the company's creations are handmade, which Tafik said is exactly what his mom would want. The Shaw family story is a realization of the American dream. Lola Shaw immigrated to the United States from the Philippines before meeting her son's dad, who served for 20 years in the U.S. Army. She came to Iowa, of all places, with no money in her pocket, says Tafik Shaw, who was named one of our Des Moines Register's people to watch for 2023. Secret of its success? Flavor, derived from the company's fresh ingredients, such as lime juice and garlic, as well as the helping of small-town Iowa values. During his childhood, Shai was often the only person of color in his class after the Shaw family moved to Winthrop. There, he befriended the children of, of farmers, which helped him realize a greater appreciation for food and agriculture, as well as Iowa nice. Those are things that bring our community together. I got to experience where our food comes from, Shaw said. Fontenelle Supply Company. Leather goods, candles, and clothing made the best that we could. Located at 524 East Grand Avenue in Des Moines. Owners, Eric Brockman, Adam Tweedy, and Asher Connolly. Product, custom-made leather goods, candles, and clothing. Why it's a legend? Fontenelle is a hip, urban menswear and accessory shop that opened in the East Village in 2016. While customers perusing its casual, cool collection of clothing, caps, belts, and wallets may not realize is that Fontenelle also is the maker of a significant portion of the products it sells. That means that, while Fontenelle offers ready-made items, it's also able to custom-made creations for customers who, for instance, want leather goods with distinctive or individualized features. Recently, the company made more than 200 leather menu covers for Oak Park, one of the most anticipated restaurants to open in Des Moines in several years. That was a really fun project. We found the perfect leather for them, perfect construction, Tweedy said. Tweedy and Bachman, who run the Des Moines store, while Connolly manages the, the original location in Omaha, Nebraska, have a discerning eye for the materials they use. Tweedy is enthusiastic when describing the untreated natural leather of Fontenelle's wallets. Pinkish when new, it develops with use a patina unique to its owner. So there's no harsh oils or chemicals in the tanning process, Tweedy said. This is as OG as it gets. Fontenelle also screen prints t-shirts, which during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic became a lifeline as the shop closed its doors for four months. Today, the custom shirt business is booming, Bachman said.
Other product lines include candles and logo caps. And the partners apply their bespoke sensibilities to selecting the clothing they sell from other markets. We're juggling quite a lot, Bachman said. Best problem in the world to have. Secret of a success? We found out how to make things the best that we could, Tweedy said. Other brands that we bring in for the store, we feel like they make that category the best that they can, too. If we're making a leather wallet, we're doing it the best way that we can. We make sure that all of our vendors that we carry fit the same deal. Do everything the right way, and it holds up. And it's better in its quality, Bachman said. We stuck with that. We hold that quality standard through the whole thing. Ephemera. Bartenders of the card world craft customized greetings and invitations. Located at 505 East Locust Street in Des Moines. Owner, Aaron Weavers and Karen Brady. Product, custom invitations, stationery, gift cards, and gifts. Why it's a legend? University of Iowa roommates Weavers and Brady began making invitations for their friends while still at school and continued to designing cards on the side after they graduated. They later moved to Boulder, Colorado, working out of their apartments and selling wedding invitations online. But Weavers and Brady didn't see a future for their business in Colorado. It's expensive. We would not have been able to afford retail space there, Brady said. So I was talking to my mom and my sister, and they were like, oh, the East Village is a thing. They're getting it going. The pair set up shop in the live-slash-work lofts on 5th Street, and, after a short stint there, moved to their East Locust Street storefront in 2008, where they've been ever since. Ephemera looks a bit different than when it first opened 14 years ago. The once barren shop now offers all kinds of knickknacks, gifts, journals, and cards for all occasions. Weber's and Brandy and Brady also have bought on two staff members to help with everything from balancing the books to providing hand lettering services. For those looking to send personal invitations, their door is always open. Secret of its success? Brady and Weber's rely on people more than anything. After all, human connections, letters, invitations, gifts, are what they specialize in. Weber's recalled the early days of ephemera when they had little to no retail offerings. Every customer who wandered into their store had to be pitched. The pair explained what they could do and what they hoped to accomplish in their new space. That personal touch and the relationships Brady and Weber's formed along the way are one of the reasons Ephemera has survived the rise of online card printing services like Minted, Shutterfly, and Canva. Customers looking for a more personal experience can still plop down in the single blue chair next to Ephemera's cash register, ready to dish to the pair who call themselves the bartenders of the card world. Our market is getting more niche, but people who have a product and want to have fun with it, those are the people we get along with, Weber said. <clears throat> BLK and Bold Specialty Beverages, Coffee Roasted with Purpose helps, helps support youth. Location, Des Moines Headquarters with nationwide distribution. Owners, Rod Johnson and Pernell Cesar. Product, hand-roasted premium coffee with a side of social impact. Why it's a legend. Johnson and Cesar met as kids in Gary, Indiana, where they grew up on the same street. <clears throat> the company began in Cesar's garage on a Des Moines' south side in 2018. 
Cesar, a University of Northern Iowa graduate who had moved to the hometown of his wife, Jessica, when they started a family, ran the coffee, blending, and roasting operation. Johnson, an Indiana University graduate, managed marketing and social media from his home in California. Not only the company's only is the company's only black-owned nationally distributed coffee brand, but they imbue it with a sense of purpose. Five percent of the company's profits are donated to supporting youth in needs across the country. We're very personalized people in how we shop and consume, and for us to have a brand that is curated by people that are passionate about the purpose that that brand can have, it carries through very deeply and intimately in how we move forward, Cesar said. <clears throat> the Des Moines Register named Cesar and Johnson among its people to watch for 2021, as they and their product quickly drew national attention. The pair, the pair appeared on the Ellen DeGeneres show with guest host Dwayne Lloyd, the NBA legend, and have collaborated with Marvel and NBA while building nationwide retail distribution. <clears throat> Secret of its success? There isn't one, says Aaron Johnson say. Just some luck, coffee grounds, and a lot of hard work. It takes accountability. It takes trial and error. It takes vulnerability. It takes grit, Johnson said, of the will to succeed. Those values the pair were raised on, and the protectiveness in the culture and community they grew up around in Indiana's Rust Belt, are implanted in what they do. We are domesticated dads that are businessmen that happen to be black from underrepresented resource communities like Gary that are predominantly black. Everything we do is embedded within the community we grew up in, Cesar said. If you're looking on Instagram and you see all the glitz and glamour, you see the end product. But what you don't see is all the years of work that it takes to get to that point and the sacrifices that come along the way, Johnson said. So, in my opinion, there is no secret to success outside of dedicating yourself to the craft and doing what's necessary to meet your goals. And Boz Prince, making cool stuff that celebrates landmarks and landscapes, located at 215 5th Street in West Des Moines, owned by John Bosley. Product, vintage-inspired prints, clothing, and mugs. Why, it's a legend, Boz, ex-lead gun designer John Bosley, perhaps best known for his Iowa 75% vowels, 100% awesome t-shirt, started his business with seven poster designs printed in the basement of his Des Moines home and marketed online. The Iowa State University fine arts grad became a bricks-and-mortar retailer four and a half years ago, opening Boz Prince in Historic Valley Junction. The similarity of his business to Ray Gunn is apparent, but the emphasis is distinct. While his former employer loves to lampoon the foibles of the Midwest, Bosley said his passion is celebrating the landmarks and landscapes of various cities and regions. His Des Moines-centric art offerings have since expanded to showcase landmarks in other major cities in the Midwest and beyond as well as Iowa State Parks, National Parks, and other states. Bosley recently was recently licensed by Drake University to begin making apparel and prints for the school. Retailers across Iowa and in 17 other states carry Bosley's prints, t-shirts, and other merchandise, notably the multi-state rally house chain. If you walk in here, no matter where you're from, there's going to be something that appeals to you, Bosley said. And Bosley's prints is still growing. The shelves in the back of the 2,800-square-foot store are filled top to bottom as the business gets prepared for the holiday season. 
Bosley noted that when he first moved in, he wasn't sure that he'd need all the space. Now he's glad he has it. A second of his success? Bosley and his crew point to passion and a desire to make cool stuff as their secret sauce. Their strategy works. The Kansas City Chiefs' Travis, Travis Kelsey recently gave an interview with one of Boz's prints in the background. An actor, Paul Rudd, was photographed wearing a Boz-designed shirt last year. We make our stuff that we ourselves want to buy. We just focus on things that don't exist that we want to exist, Bosley said. Thank you, Barb. Love always finds a way how one Iowa adoptive mom is helping pay other families adoption fees. This is written by Courtney Crowder. The text that led Brittany Johnson here, flanked by Beanie Babies and speaking to a substantial crowd at an Iowa courthouse on this frigid November day in 2022, came just shy of 13 years earlier. The baby's mother is dropping her off at a relative's house on her way home from the hospital. If you want to see her, you can stop by. Johnson hadn't known of the baby's existence until a few days earlier when she had been dragged out to a Davenport bar by friends. A relative who had been disconnected from the extended family for a while was there too and tapped her on the shoulder. Brittany, what's new in your life? She asked by way of catching up. Oh, I'm just waiting for this girl to have my baby, he replied. Those were his exact words, Johnson said, and she'll never forget those words. I just said to him, if you ever need anything, if the baby ever needs anything, let me know, whether it's clothes or formula, whatever, Johnson says. He took my phone number and the conversation was over. But she hadn't been able to stop thinking about that baby. When her relative spoke the little girl into Johnson's life, it awoke an instinct within her, like a spark lit. She'd cared for many, many children before, but never felt this well-pulled. Like two opposite poles of a magnet, she was bonded to this baby. Unbreakably so, but she didn't know that yet. So, when Johnson's phone beeped with the text, she routed her car through snowy neighborhood roads as quickly as she could, pulling up to a small duplex lying next to a warm blue couch. The baby's blonde fuzz was all Johnson could see peeking out from the silky green blanket, twinkling with shiny cartoon cherries. Johnson can't remember anyone placing the baby in her arms. Neither does she recall picking her up. She sounds insane, she knows, but in her memory, it's like the baby manifested herself there in the crook of her elbow, like that was where she was always supposed to be. Comfort and safety and happiness and warmth and ease. All the feelings that mark home. Johnson felt them then in that moment. I just remember thinking... I want to be a safe haven for this little girl, Johnson said. This little girl was going to need somewhere to run to someday. It's hard to describe, but it felt like this is what your life has led to. Like she's my purpose. The energy pulsing through her body like electrodes in a vivid neon sign would prove prophetic. Johnson would provide a blessing for this baby and sooner than she'd imagined. Then, in a moment of desperate need, another person would step in with a simple act of kindness, a second blessing to set Johnson and the baby, a little girl named Gracie, on a new course. Unable to pay back that benevolence, Johnson searched for a way to pay those blessings forward, and she's found everything she needed to rewrite the script of 13 children's lives to put herself here at this podium in the Scott County courtroom right in her garage. 
When my my cousin realized that the only thing keeping Gracie and I from having the gift of permanency was not being able to afford the main expenses that come with adoption, she showed us that love always finds a way, Johnson says to the gathered, eyes welled with tears. As you can imagine, the only way to honor such a blessing is to pass it on to as many families as I can. The first blessing, ready for something new, even if that was hard. The first text about leaving Gracie overnight came in January when she was about four weeks old. Her parents were going to a movie to work on their relationship. You available? Johnson's fingers couldn't reply fast enough. Absolutely. From then on, Gracie was in Johnson's care more than she was out of it. Even when Gracie's parents settled on a makeshift custody agreement, the turnaround time between babysitting sessions was often 20 minutes, just enough for Gracie's mother to drive her to her father's house and her father to make the trip back to Johnson's. Born with the mothering instinct most grow into, Johnson was a preternatural, preternatural protector, a perfect Saturday night to her was board games and snuggles, so she often offered to watch her friend's children rather than go out herself. Johnson had known she could love a baby that wasn't hers ever since a high school classmate asked if she would watch her son on prom night. A few hours turned into a weekend and then into a couple of months. Brittany, her two brothers, her mom, Susan, and her best friend, Ashley Boysen, became a tribe around the baby boy, trading duties, watching him before the state got involved and he was adopted. I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's kind of an inconvenience, or, oh, I don't know how to do that, so I'm not going to. But Brittany is just not that way, Boysen says. With Brittany, it's never a matter of, oh, I can't do that. It's always a matter of, how can I help you? How can we do this? How can we figure it out? The situation with Gracie was odd, maybe, for those on the outside. Johnson understood. She was a 20-year-old nurse's aide working on a degree and saving for a house while being the full-time caregiver to a baby who wasn't hers. But a recent mission trip to help the homeless in Oregon and her interactions with grateful nursing home residents unlocked a new level of empathy. You see things when you help people, and it changes you. I was more open to life, Johnson said, ready for something new, even if that was hard. So Johnson became Gracie's Mimi. She potty trained Gracie. She signed her up for preschool, drove her every day. She decorated a room for her, complete with her own bed and toy chest. She got Gracie's birth mom to sign a consent form, letting her take Gracie to doctor appointments. She dressed her up for pictures with Santa. Johnson never held the work against Gracie's parents, she says. First of all, she wanted to do it, but she also knew the environment her relative was raised in, one she deeply believed wasn't safe or healthy for a baby, and she'd heard Gracie's birth mom came from similar circumstances. Her church at the time focused a lot on trauma, how its lingering effects create a person's reality, build a person's sense of self. She also never kept Gracie from her parents, she says. When they'd come back into her life, Gracie would go but she'd always return. It always felt like home with Brittany, says Gracie, who's almost 14. She was there where I was meant to be. When Gracie reached preschool age, Johnson knew something more permanent was needed for her protection and Gracie's. Removing Gracie from what had become her home environment now would cause them both irrevocable damage. Johnson was awarded guardianship, but which gave her and Gracie more security, but it wasn't the ultimate stability they sought. Adoption was the safety net they craved. 
But with some legal estimates in the tens of thousands of dollars, Johnson thought she would never be able to afford the permanency she and Gracie desperately wanted. For that, they'd need another blessing. The second blessing, if it's just the money standing in the way. Gracie's birth mom hadn't been in touch for a couple of years when Johnson sent her a text just after the new year in 2021. Can we talk? The birth mom's reply came a few days later. She put it off, she said, when they finally spoke because she knew what Johnson was going to ask. She, she had known this phone call would eventually come, but that didn't make it any easier. The dream of adoption had been out of reach since Johnson became Gracie's guardian nearly six years earlier. Every once in a while, they talk about emancipation, about adoption at age 18, options within their budget. Gracie knew she was loved, she says, whatever the state believed was secondary in her preteen mind. But when Johnson met her partner, Brandon, and became pregnant with Boston and Montana, Gracie was bothered that she didn't share her sibling's last name. You're still their sister, Johnson would tell her, and she'd nod. But she'd write Johnson on her schoolwork, confusing teachers, and insist on the nickname G.J. Given that Gracie had been part of Johnson's extended family since her birth, invited to all the occasions and holidays, posed in all of the photos, celebrated like any other grandchild, most in the family assumed she was adopted. To them, Johnson and Gracie were as much mother and daughter as any other in the clan. So Cassie Bedum. Johnson's cousin was shocked to learn at a family wedding that no, despite adoption being the goal, cost put it out of range. Bedum and her husband had done well in business, founding a solar company in Arizona, and as the night dragged on, she couldn't shake frustration that money was the sole reason her cousin still worried Gracie could be taken from the only family she truly knew. She's just a kid. She needs that stability, Bedum says. If it's just money standing in the way of a child feeling like they have a good home, that's just not right. It broke my heart that this was the last piece of the puzzle and that it wasn't in place. By morning, Bedom was resolute. Hire an attorney, she told Johnson. I'm going to pay for it. I don't care how much it is. As winter turned to spring, the adoption process creaked forward slowly. Gracie's birth mom had given consent, but papers would eventually need to be signed. Johnson had started writing letters to Bedom, journal entries almost, about how grateful she was for this gift, one she knew she could never repay. But as heartfelt as the words were, they always fell short. What turn of phrase or string of words is enough to thank someone for making your family whole? Then, sitting in her driveway in DeWitt one Saturday afternoon, hosting her first garage sale of the season, Johnson was struck with a solution. She'd host an end-of-the-summer blowout sale and donate whatever they made to another family struggling to pay for adoption. She'd pay the blessing forward, not back. Garage sales run in Johnson's blood, she jokes, so this would be no sweat. She spent the summer stopping by other sales, looking for higher-end clothing, and often got to telling the homeowners her story. Most of the time, they'd just stop their sale right then and there. Take the rest, they'd say. Word spread around her small eastern Iowa community, and bags and boxes overflowing with clothes showed up on Johnson's porch. She started a website and had hits from every state and 19 countries within a month. This all reminded me that other people want to help. I'm not doing it alone, Johnson says. That was continuous through Gracie's 11 years, but it was the motivation that I needed in this moment. 
people want to be a part of this. Johnson repainted and remodeled and hung racks in anticipation of the opening. She wanted to elevate the shopping experience from average garage sale to retail store that just happened to be in a garage. The family even added a name out front, the Adopted Closet. In their first weekend open, the closet made about $3,000, way more than Johnson had anticipated. They restocked and opened again the next weekend and every weekend after that until the Midwestern winter got too bitter. At the end of the year, the closet covered the outstanding bills for one local adoptive family. Blessing paid forward. But Johnson had this lingering energy, like the electrodes she had felt when she her life changed once before. If they opened up every weekend possible the following summer, they'd increase revenue exponentially. More money, she thought, more bills covered, more families made secure, more blessings paid forward. The blessings that came next, it's all worth it to hear that baby is yours, finally. Johnson had prayed for the families gathered in the Scott County Courthouse for nearly a year, long before she was told their names or listened to their stories. She prayed for their birth mamas, for their adoptive parents, for their extended families. She prayed as she hung clothes in the garage store all summer long, as she ate breakfast with her kids, as she shared inside jokes with Gracie. She prayed so much when she stepped to the podium that November day that she felt like she knew them, really knew them. Gathered with a palpable eagerness were 13 children, ranging from infants not old enough to hold up their heads to grade schoolers in their Sunday finest to a trio of brothers ages 20, 18, and 16, wearing matching boutonnieres and adopting, being adopted by their aunt, a complimentary corsage on her wrist. In a short speech, Johnson winds through her and Gracie's story, through Bedome's gift, and to the moment that makes her voice catch in her throat. Today, I am so thrilled to announce that the Adopted Closet has happily taken the task of covering all of your legal fees and court costs. You can go home and do what you were called to do, enjoy and celebrate the gift of family. The room erupts into applause. Gracie locks eyes with a dad and watches his face of confusion slowly bleed into total happiness. What? asks his wife in disbelief. Later, a different couple tells Johnson they drained their savings and were anticipating being on a payment plan until her announcement that day. Your relief starts now, she tells them. What Cassie, Cassie did for my baby, I think other people should be doing for other people's babies, Johnson says. I just want to bring all our babies home. Because the fight that adoptive parents go through and the tears that people just don't see, it's all worth it to hear that baby is yours. Finally, since that day at the courthouse, Johnson's had to slow down a bit. She's a stay-at-home mom to a teenager and two kids under age five and has a fourth due in just a few weeks. She's also realized that the garage is not a long-term option. With Iowa's cold months and unpredictable spring rings, if the adopted closet really wants to make an impact, it needs a storefront. So when her kids are at school or down for a nap, she's seeking grants to minimize that overhead. She hates to think about rent eating into the adoption funds. Over the summer, a huge sale at the local community center netted thousands, and a partnership with the neighborhood Hy-Vee to host a pop-up closet brought home much-needed publicity. One day, Johnson hopes the adopted closet is a national movement without, with outposts across the country, and she hasn't worked out how exactly, but she wants to figure out ways its mission can extend to birth mothers. She's in awe at the strength it takes those mamas to give their child life 
twice. It's a bravery she's witnessed up close. Before her adoption, Gracie wrote her birth mother, mother a letter. She had a great life with a brother and a sister, a family that cared for her. She was so, so happy, she wrote. And for the choice her birth mother was about to make, Gracie wrote that she loved her, that she'd always love her. Gracie's birth mother read the letter at the lawyer's office and cried with Johnson. We're both her mommies, Johnson said, and Gracie's birth mother signed the papers. A few weeks later, Johnson and Gracie logged into a Zoom court session from their kitchen table where they'd laughed over breakfast with Boston and Montana just that morning. They raised their hands and the judge pronounced them mother and daughter. The baby, whose blonde fuzz was all that peeked out from a silky green blanket twinkling with cartoon cherries, was hers, Johnson says, finally. And now on Metro and Iowa News. 59 more Iowa churches vote to leave the United Methodist Church. An additional 59 Iowa churches are leaving the Iowa Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church over differing beliefs on same-sex marriage and ordaining openly LGBTQ clergy. Their departure is now closing the chapter on what leaders have called a tough emotional process. The conference held its second and final special session Saturday, Saturday morning via Zoom, where 405 lay people and clergy electronically voted to approve nearly five dozen churches' disaffiliation agreements. Only 12 voted no, and five voted to abstain. Eighty-three churches were already approved to part ways with the United Methodist Church this spring. The conference held its first session in late May, just days ahead of Memorial Day weekend in the start of Pride Month. The agreements are part of the United Methodist Church Disaffiliation Plan, or EXA Plan, passed during the 2019 General Conference with a sunset clause of December 31, 2023. Plans for unfunded pension liabilities for retired clergy, church property and assets, and apportionments are outlined in the agreements. Churches are seeking to disaffiliate Saturday held meetings in early May, where more than two-thirds of the congregations voted to leave the denomination, a requirement in the process. They will soon decide their next steps, become an independent entity, or join the new Global Methodist Church, a Methodist denomination that formed last year and seeks to uphold LGBTQ-related bans. Despite differences on LGBTQ policies, all of our paths lead to Christ, Bishop tells members. Members, minutes before the official voting took place, Bishop Kenneth Bingham Desai shared her thoughts on the difficult journey they shared together. I was elected a year ago in November and came to Iowa at the beginning of January. When I came to you, I began to challenge all of us to remember who we are, she said. I did that because our understanding of who we are is crucial to our direction to where we are going. We are here today because we have better defined ourselves. Some of our siblings have decided that their sense of identity leads them along a different path, and those of who are remaining have decided our identity leads us on a path to a distinctly united Methodist expression of the Wesleyan faith. But Bigham Sy said that despite their differences, they still share one thing in common, that all of our paths lead to Christ. All of us are new creations in Christ, she continued. The old is gone, and the new has come. Which churches are leaving? Of the 59 Iowa churches approved to disaffiliate Saturday, the 15 
are from the Camp Clear Lake District, which serves communities in the northwest part of the state. Many of the churches leaving are in small or rural towns, although Altoona and Pleasant Hill are also listed. To view the full list, visit the Iowa Annual Conference's website at www.iaumc.org. Thank you, Barb. Counting closing five-term March as Des Moines mayor. He led city through natural disasters and a renaissance. This is written by Virginia Barada. Mayor Frank County is closing a two decades long chapter on being captain of the team of Iowa's capital city. Now 75, County has led the way to build the city's extensive parks and trail system and tackled work on the city's infrastructure. The five-term mayor who forged a reputation for environmental advocacy and spearheaded a plan for how the city will respond to climate change also led Des Moines through catastrophic natural disasters, such as the floods of 2008, 2018, and a devastating derecho. County, who will step down in January, will be replaced by at-large council member Connie Bozen, who was voted mayor in the 2023 election. Here's a look at County's tenure through some of Des Moines' his most historic moments. In 2003, County's mayoral tenure begins. In his first run for mayor, County went head-to-head -head with then-fellow council member Christine Hensley in 2003 to replace Preston Daniels. The election was the last time any mayoral candidate had secured more than 10,000 votes until the election this November. County's run was prompted in part by a concern over Des Moines budget problems. At the time, city leaders had eliminated at least 40 full-time employees, tripled overtime parking meter fines, and shut off power to about 50% of the city's non-residential streetlights to help make up for a looming $4.7 million budget shortfall, resulting from state cuts, according to Register Archives. The issue prompted one of county's campaign slogans, we're not just going to turn the streetlights back on, we're going to turn the lights back on in City Hall. They're going so far as to turn out streetlights, every other streetlight. So it was sort of like, no, this is a public safety issue, you know, turning out streetlights is not going to make the streets safer, he told the Des Moines Register. 2005, first part of the decades-long Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway completed. The multi-phase construction of Martin Luther, Jean, Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway goes back decades. Initially, the parkway was intended to divert traffic from downtown streets to an elevated freeway encircling downtown's western and southern borders. But local business leaders like county became concerned that the highway would cut off development in an industrial area just south of the central business district. And we said, no, this should be more of a boulevard and not a divisive piece, a place where pedestrians can move across, County said. It could have been a little more pedestrian friendly, but I think they've done fairly well on finding ways to make it work. The first piece of the parkway be between Interstate 235 and the Des Moines River on the west side of downtown was constructed from 1999 to 2005. The next phase, built between 2006 and 2016, extended the parkway from the river east to southeast 30th Street. The last segment to break ground in 2024 will reach U.S. Highway 65. 2008, historic flood, Birdland levee, failure, forces, evacuations. In 2008, Des Moines and other parts of Iowa experienced historic flooding causing, 
caused by melting from the winter's heavy snowfall and above average rainfall that began Memorial Day weekend. The surge of water ruptured the Birdland Levee on June 14, 2008, forcing city officials to issue voluntary and mandatory evacuations for more than 250 homes in low-lying areas on the Des Moines north side. Other places affected included Grays Lake, Des Moines North High School, and Principal Park. Since then, more than $20 million have been has been spent rebuilding the levees, and millions more have been spent buying properties, tearing down buildings, and relocating residents. County sees the flood as a devastating milestone in his time in office. He emotionally recounted the hard work that community members did to raise the levee two feet with sandbags. We literally had thousands of Des Moines residents from every walk of life. They all came, he said. My heart was like, wow, here they are filling sandbags and throwing them on a truck, and we did it. Unfortunately, the levee was breached anyway and collapsed. It touches my heart to think about it today, seeing the tears of all the people who had worked so hard to try to alleviate that thing from happening, he said. But County said the effort highlighted the resolve of the community to come together. It also prompted the city to address levy deficiencies to prevent a similar disaster. 2015 Des Moines Waterworks lawsuit. Des Moines Waterworks voted in early, in early 2015 to sue drainage districts in three northern Iowa counties the water utility claimed were funneling high levels of nitrates into the Raccoon River, a source of drinking water for 500,000 central Iowa residents. The utility sought federal oversight of the drainage districts in Sac, Buena Vista, and Calhoun counties and indirectly farmers under the Clean Water Act. The legal battle, which played out for more than two years until a federal judge ruled to dismiss the suit, created a divide between rural and urban Iowa. The issue carried into what County called a really ugly 2019 mayoral election between him and his opponent, former Sen state senator Jack Hatch. Hatch accused County of abstaining from a 2017 vote to oppose the Iowa legislature's attempt to dismantle the utility. The late Bill Stowe, Des Moines Water Works CEO at the time, the legislation was said the legislation was retaliation for the lawsuit. County, who said he supported the lawsuit, told the register a decision should be made over who is actually responsible to enforce the Clean Water Act and what rules should we put in place to make that happen. In 2018, flash flood in Des Moines Metro launches historic investment in infrastructure. The Des Moines Metro in the summer of 2018 was inundated with nearly nine inches of rain in less than four hours. The flash flood forced emergency evacuations, caused damage to at least 1,800 homes in the city, and killed at least one person. Areas near Four Mile Creek and Walnut Creek sustained the most damage after both creeks had record high crest. That day, County and his family were returning from his grandson's baseball game in Cedar Rapids. County recalls the low visibility as the family crept down Interstate 235 toward Des Moines. He also remembers not being able to get off at the exit for his house because of deep water on the roads. It was just like, wow, how does this happen, he said. The weather phenomenon led the city to accelerate its stormwater response, devoting more than $60 million since the event to flood mitigation and stormwater improvements, according to city officials. One of the projects includes a $7 million 
toward the construction of a reinforced concrete storm sewer box culvert to replace a smaller wood box culvert in Beaverdale, an area where pipes simply weren't big enough to handle the intense storm. 2020, COVID-19, civil unrest after the murder of George Floyd. County says declaring a state of emergency on March 15th, 2020, due to COVID-19 pandemic was one of the greatest challenges during his time in office. County recalls having a conversation about the quick spread of the virus with Florence, Italy's mayor, Dario Nardala, during a virtual climate summit, climate change conference in the fall of 2019. He said, you better get ready. So I started watching it, County said. And then when we started seeing cases, we were like one of the first cities in the county to declare a medical emergency where we released CDC and WHO guidelines. You know, at first it was distance and wash. And then in the fall, we did a mask mandate, but I did it based on all the input from health experts around the county. At the time of County's declaration, there were 18 cases reported across the state of Iowa and none in Polk County. But in the course of three years plus, Iowa reported more than 900,000 cases and nearly 11,000 deaths. Polk County experienced roughly 147,000 cases and 1,200 deaths. That health crisis tested us in ways we never knew and never expected, he wrote in his farewell letter to Des Moines. It changed how we worked and the way we lived. Our daily routines became anything but simple and a return to an ordinary life seemed so unreachable. In the midst of the health emergency, thousands of protests erupted nationwide with calls for an end to police brutality following the killing of George Floyd. Floyd, a black man, died May 25th in 2020 after a Minneapolis police officer pressed his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. Floyd was apprehended after being accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. Just days into Des Moines' own slate of summer protests, about a thousand marchers arrived at County's house on the west side of the city, making demands such as the release of all protesters from jail and public support for a proposed ban on racial profiling. I hear your hearts. I hear your pain, said County as he took notes before going over the protesters' demands one by one. I thank you for doing it in a peaceful way. Let's continue that. From 2023, from 2003 to 2023, Des Moines downtown renaissance. The past two decades have brought an undeniable renaissance to downtown Des Moines from staple developments like the principal river walk along the Des Moines River and Wellmark buildings to the transformation and expansion of favorites like the historic East Village and the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. County, who calls Des Moines the heart of Iowa, said there are so many things to do in Des Moines. There's nothing like it between Chicago and Denver. The decade between 2011 and 2021 yielded about $2.1 billion in investments by developers, homeowners, and businesses, seeded by millions of dollars in tax breaks and other assistance from the city and state, according to the Register's review of building permits. The permits represented nearly 44% of the $4.9 billion invested citywide for the same time frame. In the first decade of the new century, city leaders were focused on making downtown a major job center. And even in the face of the Great Recession from around 2007 to 2009, the decade brought some of Des Moines major anchors like the nine-story Wells Fargo Bank Building at 801 Walnut Street, the Wells Fargo Arena and Iowa Event Center, the Western Gateway Park, the John and Mary Papa John Sculpture Park, once downtown had daytime vibrancy, the focus shifted to housing, primarily by providing low-income and historic tax credits to mitigate risk for developers. 
Carney says a large part of the city's evolution is about the number of people who have made the downtown core their home, a number that has tripled since the 1990s and early 2000s. There are an estimated 13,000 downtown residents, County says. We tried to make downtown a place that people would want to come and stay, and now there are great restaurants in downtown, great places to get entertained, County said. Visually impaired students compete in Iowa's first abacus bee. No calculators allowed here. Students who receive vision services from the Iowa Educational Services for the Blind and Visually Impaired took part in Iowa's first abacus bee on Saturday. The abacus bee is a competition in which students solve a series of math problems with nothing but an abacus, a counting tool with rods or wires and movable beads that can be used to solve equations. According to the American Printing House for the Blind, the abacus remains one of the most effective tools for teaching math basics to students who are blind or have low vision. The abacus is very unique to students that are blind or visually impaired, said Sarah Larkin, math consultant for the Iowa Educational Services for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Most classrooms are not using an abacus, but for students that are blind, it's what they use in place of paper and pencil, because if they don't have any vision, they're not going to pick up a pencil or a pen and write their answers down. The bee had an auditory section where Larkin was reading off various equations to the respective groups in a written portion where participants answered questions that were either in large print or braille. Students took a preliminary test and were sorted into space-themed groups based on their abilities. The groups included blasters, flyers, riders, movers, starters, and rovers. Those who placed first from each team, excluding rover, are going on to compete in nationals in Louisville. The students moving on include Dylan Carter, Jordan Robbins, Kayla Bartholomew, Jetty Wyatt, and Jaden Purge. This is something that is part of the students' daily life, and so they get to show off and let others see what they get to do on a regular basis, Larkin said. So often, things that are done in the classroom and competitions are not made accessible for them, so they don't get that Braille page or that large print page that we get them. So often, accessibility is left out of competitions that are out there at the schools. So everything here has Braille or large print, so they can access all of it. Wyatt, a student in the post-senior learning for ultimate success program offered by the Iowa School for the Deaf, said he practiced for the bee by playing a, ninth, a math game he found online and solving the problems mentally. Math is generally a cool concept, and it could be used for a lot of real-life situations, Wyatt said. Alex, Alex Lopez Salazar, a first grader and member of the rover team, said he enjoyed the bee and said he would like to participate in the next one.